So our series on Wednesday night is Systematic Theology. And uh, we started off talking about the doctrine of revelation. How do we know true things about ourselves, about God, about salvation? We spent a few weeks talking about God and who he is and what he's like. Uh, we've talked about creation, which naturally flows out of who God is and what we need to know about him. Last week we talked about angels and demons, and by implication, Satan. And tonight, we're going to talk about us, human beings. And I hate to say tonight's, um, I hate to say that it's a setup lesson for what's coming next week, but in a sense, what we're talking about next week and what we're talking about tonight really go together tightly. And to separate them is really challenging. There was a lot of times as I was thinking through um, you know, what we would talk about tonight and how far we would go where I, I just had to stop and say, we've got to save that for next week. Next week, we're going to talk about sin, the doctrine of sin. And tonight, we're going to talk about the doctrine of who we are as human beings, uh, being anthropology, as we're calling it tonight. And so next week and, and tonight's are really, really tightly connected. The word anthropology, it gets used in many different ways. Just a couple of examples. Maybe you've heard of cultural anthropology. Um, I took a, a cultural anthropology class um, as one of my missions seminars in my PhD program. Cultural anthropology is sort of looking at human beings in cultures, in societies, and uh, looking at the differences between different cultures and looking at developments within uh, certain cultures. So that's one way you may hear the word anthropology used. Sometimes it's used uh, in a biological sense to talk about human beings and their physiological characteristics and their makeup. And in some circles, you would even hear it sort of used to describe their evolution and how they've changed over times. And so you could talk about biological anthropology in that sense. We're using it tonight in the theological sense, obviously. We're talking about systematic theology. And what we're saying is we want to understand what the Bible says about us. Who are we as human beings and what do we need to understand and why does it matter? If you were here in the fall, um, you know that this is a central worldview question. This is not an unimportant issue to tackle and to understand. Every major religious system, every major worldview, every major philosophy has to answer this question in some way, shape, or form. Who are human beings? What are human beings? And the way that you answer that, qu that question has major impact on the other things that you believe in the way that you live your life and the way that you interact with other people. And I'll give you just two examples of this. I, I had many, many written down we could talk about, but for the sake of time, let me just give you two examples. Uh, naturalism is a worldview that says there is no supernatural, there is no God, all that exists is the physical universe. It has always existed, it will always exist, that's all that does exist. There is nothing outside of the physical universe. Everything that has ever happened has to be explained physically from the things that exist now. There's no God out there outside of creation to be sort of the first cause or the first mover. And naturalism says, when you get to this issue of, of human beings, it says, uh, basically, you're an accidental conglomeration of chemicals that came together at the right place in the right time. There's no really rhyme or reason to it. It could have gone a number of different ways, but this is the way it's gone, and you're just sort of here, and it's almost like an accident of history. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just chance plus a lot of time equals you. Here you are, and that's your significance. You're just almost a, a cosmic accident, and... To further that, they would say all those things that you think you feel, all those emotions that you think you feel, all those things that you're passionate about and serious about, those emotions are sort of like a, a phony thing. They're a faux thing. They're not real. It's just chemicals firing in your brain, creating this illusion that you feel a certain way. And we talked about this in the fall. That's, to me, not very intellectually satisfying at all to say to somebody who is in love with another person, you know, you really don't love them. That's just dopamine and this reaction in your brain and all of these things going off is just sort of an illusion. That doesn't really intellectually or emotionally or spiritually satisfy anybody. But that's what naturalism says about who you are. 
Here's another example, and I know that the example I'm about to give you is kind of preposterous, but I picked it for that reason uh, to make my point. Scientology. You've heard of the Church of Scientology. This is uh, one of their main locations in Los Angeles. Um, it's this nice blue building. And Scientology says to this question, who are human beings? They say, well, once upon a time, there was this spiritual race of of creatures called Thetans, T-H-E-T-A-N-S, Thetans. And the Thetans sort of got bored, and so they decided that they would create a game. And the game that they, they created was the universe, the physical universe, and the earth, and people on it. And they created this game to sort of occupy themselves. But then they got bored with the game, play a game for a while it gets boring and they said this game would be a lot funner if we weren't just sort of playing it and manipulating it but we entered the game and like we became the people in the game and so the Thetans who created everything no explanation of where they came from but they created us physical world they entered this game and took on sort of bodies and they played the game for a while but then something really bad happened they forgot it was a game and they forgot that they were Thetans and now every physical person has a thetan inside of you and you need to get it out. You need to wake up to the fact that you're not a human, you're really a thetan. And one of the problems is uh, these thetans in these bodies have been, this is their terminology, they've been crusted over or covered over with engrams. And engrams, think of like, you ever seen a boat with barnacles down on the bottom underneath the water? Think of engrams as like spiritual barnacles. They're just sort of like this spiritual thing, they cover you up. And so uh, Church of Scientology has something, thankfully, called an e-meter. And you hold these two metal things and wires go into this blue machine and they ask you sort of counseling questions and talk to you and the little dials, you know, start doing stuff. And they say, okay, you've got engrams here. We need to get rid of those and they have ways to do that. And the goal in all of that is sort of to be released from this game that you're stuck in and to return back to being an operating thetan, a functioning thetan. And you listen to that and you say, that is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. And I know it's ridiculous, and I bring that one up as, as a, a very stark contrast to what we're gonna talk about tonight to say, if you buy into that worldview, naturalism or Scientology or any other philosophy or worldview that has a different answer than the scriptures about who are we as human beings, you end up eventually in a very, very different place than where we're gonna end up tonight. All of these doctrines we're talking about, whether it's a doctrine of God or the doctrine of angels or the doctrine of who we are or sin or salvation, all the stuff we're getting to, it's all connected. And you can't just say, well, I'm going to have this one, but I don't want that one. You can't come to the scriptures and say, well, I want to believe what the Bible says about God and salvation, but the stuff about who we are and human beings and how we ought to live and sin, that stuff sort of makes me uncomfortable. It's a package deal and it's all interconnected. And all of it is affected by these different things that you believe. So here we go. What do I need to know about anthropology from a biblical perspective? Number one, humans are created beings. We are created. That means right out of the gate that our origin involved intentionality and purpose. Our beginnings, our origin as humans, at the very root of that, God creating us, there's intentionality behind it and there's purpose behind it. We are not, as naturalism says, just this cosmic accident that happened to show up. Sort of trying to figure out our meaning and our purpose. Look, if you believe that you're a cosmic accident in a long product of chemical reactions over millions and billions and trillions of however many is, many's of years, then you're pretty much free to come up with any purpose for life that you want to come up with. I mean, make it up, invent it, dream it up, whatever you feel like, go for it. But if we're created, then from the very beginning there was intentionality behind that and there's purpose built into who we are as human beings. Okay, next, we are finite creatures. 
And the opposite of that, of that, as we talked about who God is a few weeks ago, would be to say God is infinite. Right? He is infinite. We are finite. God has no end. He has no limit. We do. We're finite. And I want you to look at these two verses. Psalm 144, verse 4. Psalm 144.4 says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. That's how small you are, how quick your life is. You're just like a breath. That's what your life is like. Look what James says in James chapter 4. He says, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. We kind of have an idea of that in Odessa. Every now and then you wake up and it's foggy in the morning, but it doesn't last long. It's gone pretty quick. James says, that's kind of like you. You're here and then you're gone. And it happens that quick. You're a mist. You're a breath. We are finite creatures. We're limited Okay? Also, as created beings, you've got to understand we were created for God's glory. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this because we talked about it when we looked at the doctrine of creation. God made everything for his glory, to, to magnify himself, to glorify himself, to bring honor and praise to himself. And that includes us. We've looked at both of these verses, the one in Isaiah and the one in 1 Corinthians. And so I'll let you look those up later on your own. Okay, So we're created beings. Secondly, we're created in the image of God. In the image of God. And that means several things. And we're just going to try to talk around it a little bit. It means that human beings are unique among all that God created. And that's painfully obvious. It's unarguably obvious when you read Genesis 1 and 2. That there is a difference in everything else that God made and us. There is a uniqueness to human beings when God, he's making and he says, let's do this, let's do this, let there be this, let there be this. And then he stops and he says, we are going to make man, humans, in our image and in our likeness. Setting us apart from everything else that God has made. Um, It's amazing to think about the bigness of the universe that God made. I'm not going to give you numbers or statistics or try to show you pictures to, you know, awe your brain. You've heard all those. You can find them on the Internet, little video clips or illustrations about how big the solar system is and how big the galaxy is and the universe is, but it's really big. And the Bible describes all of that with just sort of a passing, and he made all of that, the heavens and the earth. He made the stars and the moon and the sun. He just breathed it out, and he made it. And then when it gets to human beings, as small and tiny and as seemingly insignificant as we are, the narrative of creation just sort of grinds to a halt. And it goes into great detail about how God made us. We're unique. Um, We're going to talk about implications of all this, why it matters in a minute. Let me just mention a couple of things. One of my favorite kind of movies, I'll just be honest with you, is alien movies. I love alien movies. And I thought about putting some pictures up, but I thought, eh, I'm not going to put alien pictures up on talking about human beings. I love alien movies, and I don't know really why I like them. They're fascinating to me, and I like to see what they look like, at least in somebody's imagination and all this stuff. So I like watching them. Um, I don't believe that they're real, not for a second. And I know that there are a lot of people who spend a lot of time and a lot of money searching for them, looking for them, sort of pinging for some sort of signal or feedback out there. And I don't think that alien movies are immoral, and I don't think that looking for life out there somewhere is immoral. But if you hold to a biblical worldview, you do have to understand it's a little bit misguided. Like you're looking for something of significance out in all this vastness, when all you have to do is look around at human beings. That's the most significant thing that God created according to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Another example of this, I remember being in Hawaii when I served as a summer missionary there and we went to a couple of different beaches uh, where sea turtles lived and they've got this sort of roped off area 
and it's, you know, like felony, major crime, you're going to jail, we're locking you away forever if you stick your little toe inside the rope where the sea turtle eggs are. And went to a couple of beaches where turtles are out there on the beach, and the lifeguards are very serious about don't touch the turtles. You cannot touch them, you cannot harm them, and want to be very careful with them, and it's a sort of a delicate thing, and we want these little babies to make it out, and Again, I don't think there's anything immoral about that. I don't think there's anything wrong about that. I just think there's some things a little bit out of whack when we get so concerned about one of the lower things that God has made and we're far less concerned about human beings. And I could give you a number of different examples of how we're not concerned about human beings. And some of those examples you would say, that's right, that's right, that's terrible. And some of them you would say, oh, pastor, you don't get political like that, don't say that. And some of them you'd be for and some of them you'd get uncomfortable with. Like I could say, you know, it's out of whack. We're so obsessed with sea turtles and we're so unconcerned about abortion. Crazy. And I could also say it's so crazy that we are so concerned with turtles and we really are less concerned about refugees simply because they happen to be born no decision of their own on the other side of our border and we say well that's your problem you figure it out all we care about is people born on this side of an imaginary line that we drew really people are made in God's image and I'm not saying this is the right political solution or that's the right political solution what I'm saying is you don't have the option of not caring about those people is not an option, any more than it's not an option to not care about life in the womb. So we're unique among all that God's created, okay? This next one, B, I love you so much I filled in all the blanks for you. Actually, you want to know the truth? I put all the blanks in there, and my outline was too long to fit on front and back, and I needed to make it shorter, so I took the blanks out and shortened it for you. That's why I did it. Image of God, it means we're like God and we represent God. It means, and I'm just going to give you some ideas here, we're personal, we're spiritual, we're rational, we're relational, we're creative, emotional, and moral. And you can't take just any one thing on that list and say, this is what it means to be made in God's image. But it's all of that stuff combined. It's all of who we are as human beings personal we have feelings we have a will we make genuine decisions that's being like God God does those things we do those things we're spiritual we have an ability to connect with God and we have an innate desire to connect with God people do it in misguided ways the Bible says but we all have this desire and this understanding that there's something out there that we should connect with emotional we feel different things the bible if you've read the bible it describes god feeling a lot of different emotions and we feel a lot of different emotions we're like god in that sense we're moral meaning we know right and wrong intuitively and we naturally can feel empathy with some people in certain situations um, in all of these ways it means it means we're created in his image we're in in his likeness okay c this is important God wanted human beings to have a physical body. Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Look what the text says in Genesis 2. Verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Genesis 2 sort of revisits this last day of creation from Genesis 1 and gives us sort of a zoomed-in picture of what happened. And there's a difference here. On a lot of these days of creation, God is speaking things into existence, right? They're coming out of nowhere. He's speaking them. Let there be light, and boom, there was light. Let there be this, let there be this, and it happens. And he does it differently on this day. He does say, let us make man in his image, but Genesis 2 explains he scoops up physical stuff that he made. And he uses something physical to make us part of who we are. And a lot of times we have this idea that we just have a body now and we can't wait to get rid of it and we can't wait to be this spirit floating up in the sky and we're just sort of trapped here now and it's an unfortunate thing. But from the very beginning, God wanted us to have a physical body. And in the end, we're going to come back to this doctrine later, you are going to have a physical body. 
You are not going to be a spirit floating around up in the sky forever. In the end, your spirit, your soul, will be reunited with a resurrected body. It's going to be different than the one you have now, but it is going to be very much physical, as pictured in Jesus' resurrection body, where he sort of enters rooms, it looks like, passing through the walls almost, but then he says, give me a piece of fish, and he eats it. And it doesn't just go straight down to the floor like, you know, he's some sort of ghost, but he eats it. It's physical. And God wanted it to be that way. He created people, human beings, with these physical bodies, and he said it was very good. Okay, one last idea here. The image of God was not lost in the fall of man. It's marred, and it's affected by sin. We're going to talk about that next week, but it was not lost. And I gave you a verse in Genesis 9. That's after Noah gets out of the, the boat. After the flood, and God talks about the image of God in human beings. It is not lost. It's still there in humanity. And James says the same thing in James 3. He talks about uh, us cursing people who are made in God's image. And so we still bear this image of God. Now, I'm going to put something on the screen. This was not on your sheet. I didn't have space for it on your sheet, but I'm going to put this chart up on the screen. And I know some of those words are kind of small. Um, just going to say a real quick word about this. A lot of times I read books or I hear people speak and they take these different words, body, flesh, soul, spirit, heart, mind, conscience, and they try to sort of differentiate each one of them as something totally separate within you as a human being. And they try to say, okay, your spirit is this and your soul is this and your conscience is this and your heart is this and your mind is this. And they try to divide it up all real neat like. Okay, like a chart, like I put up there. Here's what I'm telling you. There's some distinction among these different terms, right? Different emphases that are present in the biblical text. But they're all used in overlapping ways. So if you're reading something and it's saying to you that this is your soul and this is your spirit and they're two separate things, you just forget that nonsense. The Bible uses those words interchangeably in the Old Testament and in the New, and you can't draw a hard line between that and say soul is one thing, spirit is another thing. They all overlap in different ways. Uh, and at the same time, they all sort of have a, a different emphasis um, for what the, the text is usually talking about. One last thing I'll mention here before we move on to, to male and female is... One of the most interesting things I read this week, this is really getting in the weeds, but it was so interesting to me, I just thought I'd mention it. It's not on your notes. There's a debate among Christian theologians has been going on for hundreds of years about where does your soul come from? You have maybe never thought about that question. Where did my soul come from? And best I can tell, there's three different viewpoints that have been argued throughout church history. One viewpoint is called the creationist viewpoint. And these people say every time there is a conception of human life, God creates in that moment a new human soul. So there's conception and God creates a new soul at that moment. That is not, interestingly, the majority view among theologians in church history. Because theologians look at that and they say, how can you reckon for our inheriting a sinful nature, if God is creating new souls at the moment of conception, how can God create a new soul that is then united to this body in the womb, and then this person has inherited a sinful nature? How do you, how do you make God the creator of a sinful nature? And theologians have wrestled with that. So you've got another group of theologians. This is kind of interesting. I thought this was exclusive to Mormonism, but apparently there's some Christian theologians have taught this, that at the beginning, God created all souls. And they're like up in a holding tank in heaven, just sort of waiting. And when there's conception, he sort of like snatches one down and says, this one will go here, puts it in to this body. And he unites them in that way, and they're all created at the beginning Somehow that's the pre-existent view. The majority view is something called traducianism. And it's the idea that it's passed down from your parents. You receive it from your parents. And there's some biblical verses that sort of lean in this way. And most of them, the top-notch leading theologians in church history have, have argued this. That your soul comes from your parents. 
at conception. You inherit it from them, hence the idea that you inherit this sinful nature uh, from birth. And so theologians that, that teach that uh, would be like Tertullian and Augustine and Martin Luther and Aquinas and a lot of these big names that maybe you've heard of. So there you go, something interesting, and I read it this week, and that's all I'm going to tell you about it. You can pick which one you want. I don't know that really in the, the end of things it makes a big hill of beans difference, but it was interesting for me to read this week. Where would your soul come from? Number three, humans are created male and female. And I'm going to move quick here because I promise you we will come back to this. I didn't want to not mention it tonight, but we are going to come back to it in a few weeks. The Bible teaches that men and women are equal with different roles. And the viewpoint that I'm going to argue for briefly tonight and much more in depth in a few weeks is something called complementarianism that men and women complement each other in the roles that God has given them. The opposing view would be something called egalitarianism. And egalitarians would say men and women are created equal and there is absolutely no distinction in role. There's no difference in what they ought to do or can do or are called to do being male or being female. And I would argue for the position that says they are fully equal completely and totally equal in God's sight, both created in his image. Genesis 1.27, let us make man in his image, and male and female he created them, both equal. But that in the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2, especially 2, God gives men and women different roles to fulfill. And the key to this argument from a complementarian perspective is to say Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3. So these differences in roles are not just a result of sin entering the world and now we have conflict and men are mean and women are snarky and we have all this fighting. But it's to say God built these roles into creation and that's part of who God created us to be. And I think when you read the Old Testament and then you read the New Testament and you put those together, I think the Bible is saying this is built into what it means to be created in God's image. What you see in the Trinity, which we talked about a few weeks ago, I told you all of these doctrines are connected. In the Trinity, you see three persons, completely equal, all God, with different roles. The Father does some things that the Spirit does not do. And the Son does some things that the Father and the Spirit do not do. And the Spirit does some things that the Father and the Son do not do. There's equality among them, but there's also differentiation in their roles and how they relate to each other. And I think you see that uh, in marriage and in the family. And I promise we'll come back to it, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Okay? Human beings are created to work, number four. This is one of the most important things you've got to understand. Human beings were created to work. Our work and our rest mirrors God working and God resting. And look at Genesis 2. Almost all the stuff we're talking about tonight is Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2, look at verse 1 to 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, or set apart, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I don't need to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyways, just for the sake of being clear. When God rested on this seventh day, he was not tired. He was not exhausted. He was not spent. This resting is just a cessation of work. He worked for six days, and then he stopped. And he's setting this pattern for us. And you see it in the Ten Commandments, right? When Moses gives the Ten Commandments to the people, he says to them, six days you will work, and on the seventh you will rest. Why? Because in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested. And then it's changed, actually, in, in Deuteronomy when the, the Ten Commandments are repeated, and Moses says, six days you will work, and on the seventh you will rest. For God brought you out of Egypt, and he saved you. And the idea is, not only do you remember creation, but you remember your salvation on this seventh day. But when we work and when we rest, we're mirroring God in that. Okay. Along with that, let's add one more thought to work. Adam and Eve were called to work with their hands and their minds. 
And both of those are God-honoring work. Okay? Some of you say, the work I do is work with my hands. And some of you say, well, the work I do is more sort of with my mind. I don't really sort of get my hands dirty. It's not really hands-on stuff. It's just sort of mental work. And whatever kind of work that you do, whether it's paid or not paid, if you're working with your mind or you're working with your hands, that is work that honors God. And sometimes we have a tendency, those of us who work with our minds, to look down on people who work with their hands as if that's like inferior work. It's not as important of work. Anybody can do that kind of work. Well, first of all, not anybody can do that kind of work. And secondly, that's God-honoring work, work with your hands. And sometimes, let's be real honest, people who work with their hands look at people who work with their mind and say, oh, you never worked a day in your life because you don't use your hands. And that's not a biblical attitude either, because working with your mind is God-honoring work. And so look at Genesis 2. Look at verse 15. Here's work with your hands, okay? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is before sin entered the world. And God is saying, I've given you this garden, but it is not going to keep itself. So you're going to have to get in there, and you're going to have to work it. And that means you're going to have to use your hands, and you're going to have to use your back, and you're going to have to work. And then look what God says to Adam in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature... That was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In this passage, God is giving Adam a job, and the job is name the animals. You don't need a wrench to do that. You need a brain to do that. Look at the monkey and name it. Think about what it's like. Think about how he acts. Think about his characteristics and give it some sort of name. And in this job, in this task... Adam's called to work with his mind. So we'll come back to that. Work with your hands and work with your mind. One last idea. What do you need to know? You need to know that human beings are created for community. Before sin entered the world, God said it was not good for Adam to be alone. It's the first thing that's not good in the Bible. And if you're paying attention, sometimes we don't pay attention because we're so familiar with the Genesis story of 1 and 2, we miss it. But you're reading through it, and it says, God said, let there be this, and there was this, and God said that it was good. And God said that it was good. It was good. It was good. And he gets done, and he says, it's very good. He likes it. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. And then all of a sudden, you get to chapter 2. No one has sinned. Adam has not rebelled. Eve has not listened to the serpent. And God looks at things and he says, there's something that I see here that is not good. It is not good for people to be alone. And so he creates someone to be with Adam. And again, this is mirrored in who God is, right? As a trinity. He has never been alone. The Father has never been lonely. The Son has never been lonely. The Spirit has never been lonely. He exists in this community. And if we're made in His image, we're created to exist in community too. So when you think about the monks who say, I'm withdrawing from the world and I'm going to live all by myself. You say, well, that's not why God made you. He didn't make you to go live all by yourself. When you think about the person, you probably don't know many monks, but you probably know people who say, yeah, I don't need to go to church. I just go, you know, I go out in nature and just get by myself, and it's just me and God. Well, there's nothing wrong with you and God getting together out in nature, but you weren't created for it to be just you and God. You were created to live with other people in community. So sometimes in the United States, we have this individualism that is not exactly biblical. You were created to live in community. Okay, we'll end with this. Why does it all matter? Why do I need to know these things about anthropology? Number one, you were created, we said you have purpose from the beginning. Created to enjoy God, to imitate God, to glorify God, and to represent God. Listen to Psalm 73. I think Psalm 73 is my favorite 
chapter in the Bible. Psalm 73, verse 25. Asaph says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? There is no one in heaven and nothing on the earth that I desire to have more than God. I find more joy and satisfaction in getting him than anything else. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20 in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Paul's saying we're representatives of God. We're his ambassadors. We speak for him. We live for him. We represent him. You can look at that list of things that you just filled in, and you can flip them upside down, and you can see pretty good descriptions of what sin is, right? You were created to enjoy God. Sin is when you try to find joy outside of God. You're created to imitate God. Sin is when you imitate creation rather than creator. You're created to glorify God. Sin is when you exalt anything that God has made, anything that exists, yourself, a statue, money, an idea, an ideology, anything above God, and you glorify it over him. You're created to represent God. That's your purpose. Sin is when you misrepresent God. You live your life in a way that is not reflective of who he is. So you need to know your purpose. Number two, we have dominion over creation, and dominion implies responsibility. God has given us this rulership over all that he's made. That means we're responsible for it. If you're responsible for it, you're going to have to give an account for it someday. We're not going to look up Matthew 25. You can look it up later. It's a parable of the talents, right? And we think of talents, this parable, sometimes as, you know, maybe God has given me money and I need to be a good steward of it. That's fine. We say, well, God has given me certain gifts and abilities. I'm going to have to give an account for how I use those. That's good. That's fine. But collectively, we've been given this responsibility to have dominion over the world that he made. And collectively, and you're part of that collective, we're going to have to give an account for how you exercise that dominion. So sometimes Christians have a tendency, because many Christians in this country tend to be uh, right-wing, and we have a tendency to laugh at the left-wing crazy tree-huggers as just being crazy people. And they're kind of crazy, no doubt about it. But as Christians, you don't have the option of not caring about creation. You have to care. The outcome of that may be a little bit different than some on the left would want it to be. But you have to care. You don't have the option of just saying, ah, just use it and abuse it. It doesn't matter. That's not part of who God has made us to be. So You, you have to care. Um, you have to care for people. You have to care for things that he's made have responsibility and will give an account. Okay, number three. We are not free to invent our own categories of sexual orientation, gender identity, or acceptable relationships. And you could add a number of things to that list, but that covers a decent amount of ground. We're not free to invent those things. It's not our place to just sort of make them up as we go to add to this ever-evolving list of who you want to be and how you want to identify and who you want to be with and how you want to live is not ours to make. One argument that you'll hear about, uh, people make this argument, and I, and I read it on Facebook or you read it in books, people say, well, Jesus, Jesus never said anything about gay marriage. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Jesus never said anything about all of these issues that we're wrestling with today. Paul, the the male chauvinist crazy guy, he had a lot to say, but Jesus never said anything. To which I say, baloney. They came and they questioned Jesus right at the end of his life about marriage. And they're trying to trap him and they're trying to be cute and they're trying to come up with their own definitions of how things work and they're trying to make him look silly for the position that they thought he would take. And they say, hey, how's it going to work if, you know, this woman and She's married to these different guys and divorced. and make, make sense of all this. And one of the things Jesus said to, the, to these people who are trying to be cute when it comes to sexuality is, have you not read from the very beginning that he made them male and female and that what God brings together you should never separate? 
there's a purpose in it. There's an order built into how God made us and who he made us to be. And you or I or anyone else is not free to play with that or to toy with that. You can read that in Matthew 19. Look at Romans chapter 1. Yes, this is Paul. It's not directly red letter Jesus. But if you were here the very first week, we talked about the doctrine of revelation and what we believe about the scriptures. We don't believe that the red letters in the Bible carry any more weight than the black letters because we believe the Holy Spirit of God inspired all of the letters. So this is authoritative. Romans 1 verse 26 For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they did not acknowledge their creator. They denied this idea that there was a creator behind all of it. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Making it up as they go. And Paul's saying, you, you don't get that liberty to just make it up as you go. And I assure you, those who disagree with this on this issue are making it up as they go. And I'll give you just one example of that, okay? Making it up as they go. The progressive mindset today would say to you, you cannot, you do not have the ability to change your sexual orientation and who you're attracted to. It is part of who you are. It cannot be changed. They've been making this argument for a long time to say, You're born this way. There is not a thing that you can do about it. And yet, as this sort of idea has continued to evolve, they would say today, your identity, your gender identity can be a fluid thing. It can sort of lean one way one day and lean another way another time, and it doesn't stay the same. It can change. Your orientation can't. But your identity and how you identify can. And then they take it a step further to say your biology most certainly can be changed. Physically, we can change it. If you want to change it, change it. You don't have to keep it the same. So you say, wait a minute, some things I can't change. Some things I can kind of change. Some things I can change. And you look at this and the inconsistency and you say, they're making it up as they go. It's inventing evil. And the biblical worldview says we're not at liberty to invent it, to make it up, to change it. It's part of who we are as creatures. You cannot hold to this make-it-up-as-you-go mindset and hold to the biblical idea of creation. They're exclusive. So you got to make a choice. You can't just pick and choose in your worldview and say, well, I want a little bit of this one, but I'm going to pass on all this other stuff. It all hangs together. And when you jettison one part of it, it affects everything else. Okay, number four. Human life is valuable and it should be protected. James talks about this in James 1.27. What true religion looks like. And I'll just mention a list of things here, okay? Looking back at church history, not just today in the United States, but church history, lots of different places, lots of different times. This is why Christians have cared about the issue of, first it was exposure, in the Roman Empire, it wasn't abortion initially, it was exposure. It was taking babies that were unwanted or deformed or sick and just leaving them out, exposing them. Christians were the ones who went and picked them up and took care of them. It would include issues of uh, abortion. It would include adoption. It would include taking care of orphans and widows, like James talks about. It would include caring for those who are without a home. It would include end-of-life issues. It would include refugees and people who are suffering, regardless of what side of an artificial man-made border they were born on. Christians have always cared about these issues. We can disagree and debate about policies 
and how to best handle these issues. What you can't say is, I don't care about that. Those, I don't care about those people. I don't care about those situations or those people who are suffering or those lives. You have to care about those lives if you believe what the Bible says about human beings. Life is valuable. should be protected. Number five, we should think of work as vocation. Not just work, but vocation. Here's a definition of vocation I read on, uh, on a dictionary today. It says, it's a strong feeling of suitability for a career. We, we hear vocation, we think, oh, like vocational school. Like if you don't want to go to college, you go to vocational school. And in most people's minds, that's some sort of like second class thing. But the old definition of vocation is saying you have an understanding that your career fits you. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Another definition would say a person's employment which is worthy of great dedication. The thing that I do is worthy of me being dedicated to it and trying to do it as best that I can do it. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7. talks about your calling, where you are in life and the value of that and the importance of that. Here's what we're saying when, when we say, Think about work in terms of vocation. If I asked a lot of you, why do you work? Why do you work? Or why did you work if you were retired? Or those of you who are retired have probably learned that you don't get to quit working. Once you retire, you just stop getting a paycheck for it. And you find other things to do to work, to help. So I'm not talking about paycheck work only. I'm just talking about work. Why do you work? And some of you would say, well, I just do it to help other people or I just I got to pay the bills right you got to pay the bills so you work that's the only reason to do it and some of you would say well I do it so that I can give right Paul talks about that to the church in Ephesus he says let the thief no longer steal but let him work so that he has something to give he's not dependent on other people he doesn't need to steal from other people but he can provide for himself and he has something to give to other people what we're saying here is even more basic and foundational than that. We're saying when you work, regardless of your work is, whether you're paid or unpaid, whether you're working with your hands or you're working with your mind, work itself honors God. And you got to be done with any idea of, I come into this room to do spiritual things and I go out of this room to my job to do secular things. There is no distinction when you walk through that threshold of I'm leaving spiritual things behind and now I'm going to do secular stuff. It doesn't matter if you're selling cars or you're principaling kids or you're balancing books or you're managing storage units or you're designing buildings or you're helping people in a hospital or you're watching your grandkids or you're doing any number of things that you may do for work, right? Any number, working with your hands or working with your, your head, your mind. Work itself honors God if you drive nails for a living you should be the best nail driver you can be and every time you drive one in say that honors God it's hard for me to honor God driving nails because I'm not good at it but if that's your job you ought to be really good at it and you ought to do it as best that you can do it and in the act of work itself you honor God because that's part of your purpose that's part of what you were created to do Every one of you knows men or women who have come to retirement and they retire and they say, well, now what do I do? I don't have any purpose. I don't have any, I just, uh. and every one of you have visited people in a nursing home who physically can't work. Again, I'm not talking about paycheck work. I'm just talking about work. They physically can't do it. And you talk to them, and what do they say? They say, I just feel useless. I just feel like I can't, I have no purpose. I have no meaning. I can't do anything. That's not just old people throwing a pity party. That's old people saying to you, work is important. And it honors God when you work. Not just when you preach sermons and do quote-unquote spiritual things, but when you do your job and you do it with excellence. Work matters it's important and it honors God last idea is this Jesus we'll talk about this in a few weeks but Jesus is the truest picture of a human being 
John 1.14, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Philippians 2, he humbled himself and he took the form of a servant. He appeared in the likeness of men. The one who made us in his image eventually took the form of the creatures he made in his image and lived among us. And when you read Genesis 1 and you read that he makes us in his image, you realize that's a total setup for what's coming in the New Testament. When the creator doesn't take the form of a cow, doesn't take the form of a mountain, but he takes the form of the one creature that he made in his image. And he shows us in his life what it looks like to be truly and fully human. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about who Jesus is. I've given you a whole list of books. You can look at them, and I'm just going to mention one of them tonight. The rest of them are up here if you want to flip through them or you want something to look at. This is one of my most favorite books I've read in the last, let's say, two or three years. It's called Every Good Endeavor. It's by a guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a Presbyterian pastor in Manhattan, and he's one of the smartest guys on the earth. But he writes books that you don't have to be one of the smartest guys on earth to read, which I like. So he's really super smart, but he doesn't write to you like, you know, you can never understand it. And the whole point of this book is to say whether you drive nails or you drive a taxi or you preach sermons or whatever kind of work it is that you do, whether you get a paycheck for it or you don't get a paycheck for it, it honors God and you need to see it as honoring God and is a really, really great book and if you've ever found yourself just sort of thinking oh this job is the worst and I don't there's no value in it there's no purpose in it I'm not making any difference it's just sort of I just have to do it to pay the bills you should read this book and it's I promise it's not it's not a super difficult book any one of you can make sense of it and uh, it's a great theology of work and why it's important and why it matters so there you go Next week, we'll pick up where we left off tonight, and we'll continue talking about human beings. We're going to talk about sin. And uh, you can't have next week's lesson without tonight's, and you can't just have tonight's lesson without following up with next week. They both go together, and so that's where we're headed in a week.